You are listening to the Signal to Noise podcast on the Pro Sound Web Podcast Network, sponsored by Audix. I wish I could break free back to where I'm supposed to be. Welcome back to the Signal Noise Podcast. I'm Ryan John. I'm joined by Kyle Churnside, Chris Leonard, and our uh, special guest, Michael Lawrence. That's pretty good, man. All right. Man, every time we let someone do the intro, I feel like, oh, shit, I'm like, I'm going to lose my job over this. You, know? you knew I was going to make somebody the special guest, right? <laughs> so you are joining the very short list of people who have been on the show more than once. Um <laughs> Chris Mitchell, Chris Raybold. Um, I don't know if we're counting Willa because she's like sort of our ringer co-host. So, but we'll count her for the sake of this yeah, discussion. Jim, Jim Yak probably holds Jim. the record. Jim Yak like, is yeah. the reigning champion. He's yeah. been on the show. I think it's four times he's been on. Uh, I'm not going to lie. That's an intimidating list of names to be stuck in between. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually still on the podcast, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> Weird. I've held this job longer than most manufacturers by that. Oh man, you've been a guest on the podcast for how many episodes? Fifty. <laughs> no, yeah, fifty some. Well, let's see. I mean, Chris, you put up in the in in the Facebook group. You you asked for uh, some topics and what people kind of had on their minds. And Ryan Ryan came in with a bunch of ideas. And so I guess we took the path of least resistance and said, well, why don't you come on the show and talk about them then, Ryan? Oh, and man. here he is. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think at that time I saw that post and I'm like, I'm angry about things. Here are all the things I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, well, yeah, so that's actually uh, a good point. Just, you know, if you don't know already, you know, and if you happen to be on Facebook, unlike Michael, uh, Signal to Noise podcast, Facebook group, um, a, a lot of our guests, like Ryan, uh, are in there. Uh, a bunch of you get, uh, who listen to this, you know, are in there. And um, it's just a good place to hang with like-minded people uh, and grow this community around the podcast. We're really enjoying seeing you guys engage and talk with us. We do want to hear you know feedback from you guys, questions, topics, funny pictures. Um, we haven't talked enough about food recently, so that's beside the point. Um, but uh, we kind of got do- berated about that. In the <laughs> if you had to describe this podcast as someone, what would you say? And everyone was definitely about the food. Now, yeah, we we got to go back to that. We got to yep. we got to circle yep. back. Yeah, it's uh, this is a taco podcast that happened to talk about audio. So yeah, that's that's what it is. <laughs> I I do feel you know I was thinking about this the other day because I had I think I sent you guys I texted you guys with some pictures. Uh, my girlfriend had some shrimp tacos the other day up up in Saratoga, and um, I was like, this is not like a gimmick. Like we actually really like having good food. In our message chat, our group text chat, if you go to info and look at images, 90% of the images, no joke, are all the food that we eat. So, yes, this is a real thing. <laughs> the other 10% well, are me with my shirt off. <laughs> so, so, so speaking of which, I, I, I finally figured this out, uh, Michael and Kyle. So, I, I, Michael, I know what Kyle is trying to do, right? So he wants to take over Joe Rogan, right? So first he got on the podcast <laughs> to get, a, get his chops up, right? Secondly, he is get, getting swole AF, right? Oh, he is. He, he is, is just going to go in and take out Joe Rogan and take over. Like, I, I see the plan now. I see the plan. See, you guys are taking all these, like, little classes, learn how to mix and stuff. I'm just going to beat <laughs> I'm gonna beat everybody up and take your job. <laughs> just the brute force approach. Brute force I'm, approach. I'm still not sure which of those will win. <laughs> At this point, um, yeah, brute force. 
Well, all right. So, so Ryan, we did a sort of a part two, at least it was my part two for your mix 45, uh, exercise, I'll call it mm-hmm. uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I also, I wanted to just circle back to that cause it's such a great exercise. Um, it was kind of funny for me because, you know, it, it's not just about, Hey, I have a short amount of time. I need to prioritize what I want to go to work on, you know, um, which I think is important, but it's also equally important. Like how, how well do you know this console? How well can you get around and, and do right. things on this console? And what sort of made it a triple threat for me was the band I mix had just purchased a new console. And I said, all right, well, I will use this sort of session as a training for the, for the band leader. And so I, I had him sit next to me as I went through everything and just showed him how I was getting around on the desk. So I was actually um, a little more engaged with the console end of it than I would be otherwise. And I'm going to like, just explain how I'm getting here and, explain what I'm doing. And, and I, it's really a great exercise, especially for, you know, uh, the current climate where we're not getting as much console drive time as we usually would be. Right. Cause we're not out gigging constantly. Um, it's really good to keep you fresh. And, uh, I enjoyed it, man. And, and I, I will also say that I think really one of the best parts for me is a discussion afterwards. I get to see what yeah. you did. Um, and you know, I chatted with you a bit about what you're doing with differently than what I was doing. And I think that's, that's a really good, uh, part of the exercise. So I just encourage anyone who's listening to grab some multi-tracks. There's a ton of good free places online, the Telefunk and websites where we usually get ours from and uh, throw them in, throw them in your console and, and see what you can do and, and talk to some friends about it, man. It's, it's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, definitely in a time where we're not actually getting real console time these days, finding a way to have some time to maintain, you have that muscle memory is, is pretty valuable. Uh, I know I've said it before, but I typically when explaining it to people, I try to equate, like a console to a guitar. Like if you were a guitarist and you had to think about how to play each note, it doesn't matter what song you're playing. It's going to be kind of crappy. But if you didn't have to think about how to play, then you're just playing. And it's the same with the console. If you don't have to think about how to do things, you're just executing the art side rather than, you know, jumping back between technical and art and technical and art, you know? Yeah. And I, I've heard uh, the, the basis Victor Wooten make an analogy to speech. He's like, when, yeah, you know, hopefully when you talk, you're not thinking about how do I have to you know move the muscles in my face to say the the, the, the phonemes I want to create. I just know what I want to say and I can say it. And, then, you know, can you get to that point on your instrument? And our instrument is, is, is a console. Right. So can you get to the point where you don't have to think about how do I make a console do what I want? I can just do it and focus on on the, you know, the art. Well, there's also another beautiful thing that that victor has in his book um where he kind of talks about where he talks about how he learned to play bass and you know he was surrounded by experts in music for his childhood right and it's the same as when learning speech you're surrounded by experts right and when you speak and make weird noises they don't go you screwed up saying this word they embrace it and they kind of do it with you until you're doing it correctly and in Musical instruments, usually when you're a beginner, you're stuck with beginners. And then when you become intermediate, you're stuck with intermediate and, you know, et cetera. But in his learning experience, he was a beginner and stuck with a bunch of experts. Mm. And he learned music as a whole before he ever learned how to play his instrument. And I don't even mean, you know, notation and, and charting and like actual theory, but he learned what music should feel like and all of that and the feel and the vibe. And I guess there's a similar parallel in that, you know, us as engineers, we know what we like to hear and we learn all of that and we learn how we want things to feel and how we, or rather how we enjoy things to feel 
and how we enjoy things to sound. And then comes the technical aspect where we learn specific tools to achieve those. And then, of course, if you already know what you want it to sound like, the better you are at the technical aspect, the less there is between point A and point B from what you're being given and what your head wants to hear, if that I makes sense. That. Yeah, I, I love it. And I also think, um, you know, there's an argument, there's a philosophy that says, like, oh, I don't deal with any of the, the technical understanding. I just, I just do what I feel. And I think where you get into thin ice with that is any of us could listen to a mix and go, I don't like this. I don't like the way the bass sounds or, you know, or, you know, the proverbial meme, this, your snare sounds like shit meme. Like it's, it's a meme, but it's, it's it you know, it's, it's funny uh, because the, there's this true, like, I think a lot of us can hear an issue with the mix, but not all of us know what objective technical steps to take to fix it. So you still have to link that preference or that artistic thought with some sort of action. We're going to go into the console and do something to the mix. So you have to have that technical vocabulary in order to be able to, you know, to fulfill those artistic thoughts that you're having. Right. But even that statement in itself assumes some technical knowledge. You go, I don't need to know the technical stuff. I'm just going to grab an EQ and a compressor and fix it. Well, you, already know, <laughs> you already know this small amount of technical stuff. You're just choosing not to learn the rest or mm -hmm. some other amount of it. You know, mm -hmm. it's almost like the assumption that what I know is enough, but mm -hmm. what we know sh probably should never be enough because, you know, like in the Mix 45 example, how I approach hitting that song versus how you approach hitting that song, it's insightful to me to see what you went to and what you were trying to find in various channels and how you were trying to manage them. Whilst I imagine it is equally insightful for you to see what channels I went to and what I was trying to find in them and what I was trying to fix and how I did it or whatever. Well, let's talk about a specific example because it was something that, that came to my mind as soon as I watched your video. I start with kick and work up through the kit. You started with overheads. And I think that's really an interesting uh, approach. And, I, and it's one I've encountered before. Um, and I'll just say that in a live context, I try to use as little overhead as possible because I don't like all the other stuff that's being picked up in the average overhead mic. Um, mainly mainly symbols. We don't, uh, we don't like symbols. <laughs> I don't like symbols. So, you know. Amen. Amen. I, I've been known to use closely placed underheads and mm -hmm. literally just isolate the symbol. And then I basically can bring the symbols on. But you're still isolating the thing I don't like. There's an article on Pro Sound Web by Michael Fay, my friend Michael Fay, and he, he wrote about why do we mic symbols? Like, why are we adding white noise into the mix? And it was a very thought-provoking piece. But but that was an interesting thing. So you're like starting with the overheads and like working on that drum set as an image and then sort of supplementing that with the individual inputs. And I, I go the complete opposite direction. I just think that's a really interesting um, thing to think about. You know, like as a mixer, why might you choose one approach over the other? And, you know, maybe people who are in this habit of, of doing it a certain way, like try it the other way and see what you get, you know? So I, I can definitely tell you that there was a point in time where I hated overheads and I never wanted them. And it, you know, it, it wasn't a thing I wanted to put in the mix. But then you get to a certain size venue and you're yep. watching a drummer hit cymbals and you're going, I can't hear it. Hmm. And I <laughs> right? Especially once you're at a spot where a front of house is 150 feet away. I need yep. to be able to hear what I'm seeing, especially yep. if it's stuff like iMag. And I know this probably sounds stupid, but if there's video happening, and the video is showing some guy in the corner playing his xylophone in the background of your band, you need to make sure the audience sees that because the majority of your audience is not actually seeing the people on stage in a show that big. They're mm -hmm. seeing the iMag. So if they see a guy hitting his xylophone, you need to make sure they hear it. 
So have you have you ever tried an underhead approach though? Do you, the more I, isolated? I have. I have. Um, I hate the sound of a cymbal swinging up and yes. down. Yes. <laughs> and and you can't hear stick hits. So if right. they're doing cool things on the ride and notes on the ride, you can't hear the the nylon tip or the wood tip totally. or the, the butt of the thing. Like you got to be able to hear those stick hits. Putting it under, you're just hearing the wash of the thing rattle exactly. out. Exactly. Yeah, I I see under as basically turning the symbol only into the white noise with a stupid EQ curve that boosts a bunch of like that. <laughs> right. You know, because it takes away what I actually see as the nuanced detail of the symbol, which is exactly what Kyle said. It is the stick hits and stuff. And if I could, I'd find a way to make it so it's 90% the stick hits and 10% the white noise. Same Z's. You and know? I imagine typically, how often is your head under the symbol listening to t- listening to symbols? Right? Only I mean, when you're uh, plugging them in. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> yeah, when you're plugging them in, and the drummer decides to check a bunch of stuff. Right. But I mean, no, that's something to think about too, though. And like, I think when we're when we're talking about mic placement, right? I mean, um, and or when we're panning out into like a drummer's mix and stuff like that, like, what are we doing? We're doing uh, spatialization of what we're used to to hearing and the way you know trying to replicate how we actually hear it. So you know, the same reason you probably don't mic a guitar cover from behind it because you don't stand behind a gar- behind the guitar cover. Although you stand I in front of it. Well, yes, but <laughs> I have also stood behind a guitar cabinet. I've also been to the bus when the guitar cabinet was on. My, <laughs> my, my, the, the reason that when I have used underheads, the reason that I've done that, um, either like you, I mean, the first thing you said, Ryan, is like it de- hugely depends on the size of the room. Right. Um, my first tour, tour of the rooms were so small that I wasn't miking anything on the kit other than like the kick and maybe this, you know what I mean? Like just when you're talking about 80 cap clubs, right? Um, but to me, the isolation, the fact that since your mics are pointed up, the rest of your drum kit is now off axis on the mic and is being rejected. Um, that was the original reason that I started doing it because I was in a situation where the drum bleed into the cymbal mics was agitating the drummer who was on in-ears. I, I like have an it. answer for that. And okay. I actually took it from the book of uh, Bruce Ryder. And uh, the, the Chris kind of mentioned it too. You got you to gotta listen to the image as you are the drummer. And, and this comes from a monitor engineer that does ears. I started pulling my overheads back mm-hmm. as if a jazz drummer. You get more toms. You get the sound of the kick. You hear what the drummer is hearing from that ratio. And it takes some of the wash out. Obviously, you know the dynamics of the mic are highly questionable once you start pulling them away. But the measuring from the overhead to the snare and lining them up, the ability to do that now is way easy Mm -hmm. and it will relax the close mic EQ that you have on everything. And when I say relax, it'll keep the energy of the drums. Like drums are my favorite shit. I put that on the Facebook thing. (laughs) Someone (laughs) mentioned, uh, you know, how to, what do you do to make drums sound good or whatever? And how do you get them right? How many effects, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, dude, drums are my shit. Like I will grab a drum key. Cause uh, here, here's where I learned warp tour. Yeah. That drum is inside, outside in a hot truck, in a hot Sitting in the stun for hours. Yeah. It's going to be on stun for hours. Like, and, and then I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be rude, but kids will get a kit and make the drum sound like it sounds in their head instead of what the drum actually sounds like. So they'll tune 10, 12, 14, 16 inch drums, not 
to the tuning of the drum, they'll tune it to a tone that they want that thing to sound like. So uh, there's so many cool things that you can do with overheads to assinuate like what the drums are actually supposed to sound like. I'm glad we got into this. Now I'm all excited. Uh, Thanks for showing up. (laughs) Ryan, I have a question. So when you're starting with overheads, though, um, uh, what are you doing with the high pass in that? How much of that kit are you trying to bring in with the overheads? Are you just trying to use them for cymbals? I I guess it depends. Um, It depends on what the band is. And I guess more importantly, it depends on what the bleed sounds like. If the bleed is crazy, I will high pass higher so that I don't end up detrimenting a bunch of other instruments in it, right? But I don't think a snare top and a snare bottom mic sound good. I think a snare sounds best in its overheads. It sounds to me most like a snare drum. So if I pull that up, then you know, slide everything else into it, I can basically accentuate the sound that I like the most with the extra bits I need. So... I am, for the most part, trying to get the whole kit into the overheads. Uh, probably not kick drum because it's just loose or low end up there mm-hmm. from that far away. But I definitely want the snare drum in it because, again, my favorite kind of snare mic, if you will, is drum overheads. I think once you're four feet away from the snare drum, that's where it actually sounds awesome as opposed to you know three inches away, two inches away from the head. Um, so my high passes are often quite low. And on my own shows... Uh, usually I'm using Earthworks overheads and they're Omni and they pick up way down into the bottom end. And my high pass in those contexts is usually based on the amount of bleed and how, how low I can get away with keeping in the overheads before it becomes a problem to start messing with other sounds. Um, and I remember the first day I, I got to do a gig on the SL series from DMB. And I remember it completely changed the way I high pass my overheads because I could move the high pass down by another hundred Hertz and there wasn't PA bleed kicking all the way back into it. And that was crazy. It made my drum sound easily the best it had sounded for that whole run just by being able to add a little bit more bottom end from an overhead pair, which exactly as Kyle mentioned, I also measure from the snare drum. Yeah, I think, and I want to I want to get into the whole timeline of mics because it's really interesting. But I wanted to circle back to something Kyle said because I, I thought it was an interesting thought, which is Kyle, you were like, you know, you have to pay attention to what what the drum actually sounds like, not what you want it to sound like. And I, I would just add that sometimes creating the sound just a larger version of what the kit actually sounds like in the room. Sometimes that is not my goal. Yeah. Sometimes I want a larger than life. I mean, I think about. Uh, like so Bruce with five finger death punch is a great example. Like those drums on those recordings are there's no drum kit in the world that sounds sounds yeah, like, like yeah, it's 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 just absurd. But sometimes stylistically I want a larger than life drum sound. So in that case, my goal shifts from let us let's find the best way to most transparently reinforce this kit to no look there, there's some sound design happening. Like what artistically is the sound we're going for? And I just think that's that's an, something to think about. But um I think I Oh, go ahead, Chris. Well, no, I was say, you know, it's, I, I'm reminded uh, of back when I, you know, was going to audio school. One of the things that was taught to me early on was to not. Um, I think often we have the, we have the tendency to, uh, all right, put up the kick drum, tune it, cool. All right, put up the snare, tune it, cool. You know, one one by one. 
Yep. And then and then you bring up this whole kit, and then you throw overheads. It's like, wait a minute, that's not the kick I heard. That's not and the snare I heard, right. right? Like, what happened, right? So I, I'm, I. This is more me thinking out loud of like, oh, okay. I think maybe some of the philosophy of starting with the overheads is that well, if you're gonna put that there in the end, you might as well put it in the beginning because it's gonna color yeah. your sound and your space of things. Uh, yeah. And yeah, so yeah, it's more of a well, it's, it's real time realization. You, it's the same as if you've got a vocalist who, let's say, keeps their mic on a stand the whole show, and it's pretty hot. If you pull that in at the end of your mix, your whole mix is going to fall apart. Destroyed. You know, with all the bleed and all that stuff happening in it. But if you pull that in early, then you can kind of fill in all the other spaces with your close mics on the various other instruments and already know what it's going to sound like when the vocal's there. Now, mind you, when the vocalist gets in front of it and there's literally a head blocking you know, the drum kit from bleeding into that mic and, you know, obviously someone's singing. It's going to change a bit, but at least it's not like a night and day. Holy crap! What just happened when I added mm-hmm. the vocal? So, and it, like, if you do it, if you do it with that kind of vocal last or overheads last, in my opinion, you almost negate a bunch of the work you've already spent going through. You know? Yeah, that's no, funny. So th- this it actually nods to two things we've talked about, and I know we've talked about in the past. One is uh, so Will Miller had a very distinct story about uh, when he was out with Disturbed, and like the the main you know main singer was like, "Hey, this just doesn't sound right. Doesn't sound right." He's like, "Yeah, well, your head's not in front of the microphone." I literally said it to him, <laughs> right? Now he had a, now my, uh, a caveat there with he had a relationship with him. He could say that I don't recommend right. you saying that to your artist, right? Second thing, um, one of the things that I know Kyle and I have talked about is that when you're starting um, when you're starting your sound check and you're starting doing monitors, the first thing you do are vocals. And and so there, and there's two reasons here. One, a so everyone can talk to each other, and yeah. two, if the vocals are going to be there the entire time, like you said, it's going to color everything. So yes, absolutely start there and then build from it. Anyway, just you're you're hitting on two points I know we've talked about before, and it was worth highlighting. Then yeah. uh, Ryan, I know you're proficient in this because one of your super old Facebook posts that I started commenting on when you were asking questions and doing shootouts with mics and stuff was mm-hmm. phase. And hitting the phase reversal button opposed to using something that time aligns or <laughs> you can dial in the phase. I won't give my opinion on it right now, but I want to hear what you have to say with it because I know you do a lot of measurement and mic measurement. We'll put it this way. I've been kicked out of Facebook groups. I've been kicked off forums for having this problem. That's why I wanted to get you going, boy. <laughs> and that, that was years ago, and I still, I still laugh about it, you know? <laughs> But, you know, phase and polarity, two different things, right? We all agree on that. The problem is where people kind of merge those two concepts as if hitting a polarity button fixes phase on something like a drum kit, right? We all know that the only correct phase on a drum kit is a single microphone, and then it is receiving everything in correct phase, right? The moment you put a second microphone there, any source that is not equidistant from that second microphone is going to merge in some sort of, you know, destructive or potentially constructive interference, right? Correct. So when it comes to things like phase versus polarity, um, first of all, we now have tools that make this so easy to literally see what the physics of this are. So, you know, I can have a drummer or, or, or uh, you know, a, backline tech go on stage and hit the snare drum and i can look in my recording did it come through as positive polarity on all these microphones or whatever and i can look at it and go this is positive this is negative and i can make my polarity decisions based on that right but 
we'll pick the snare drum because it's the easiest example and it's probably the one that I think like sonically actually matters the most. It's the one we hear the clearest. Um, when you hit a snare drum, you've got a snare top mic that is, let's say, seven inches away from the actual point of impact. Okay. Then we have a snare bottom mic that is pointing another direction. It is now receiving pressure towards it rather than pulling away from it. And this is at minimum seven inches away, but often more than that, let's say 11 inches away. I feel like that's a pretty normal number. Now you have an overhead that is also pointing down towards the snare drum that is receiving negative polarity, but this one's four feet away. And now we have maybe the other overhead, and maybe that one's five or six feet away because you're spreading them evenly above the cymbals rather than evenly from the snare drum. Now you've got negative polarity and positive polarity all merging together, all hitting at different times, and you're putting them out in quote-unquote mono, because we're maybe not mono, maybe you've panned your overheads, but you're merging all these sounds and putting them out one set of speakers. And the moment they've come out one set of speakers, all of these, you know, waveforms, they combine, right? So at this point, I exactly, as you said, I just kind of tested a bunch of stuff just to see what in what to me sounds the best. And I cheated by doing this. What I did was I went into Pro Tools and I looked at the waveforms as they were recorded. And I measured from the zero crossing of the snare top mic to the zero crossing of overhead left. And then same for overhead right. And then same for snare bottom. And I, I added delay to all the channels to make them all line up with the latest one. So like, let's say overhead uh, drummer's right was the farthest away. And that's, I guess, typical because it's the one that's you know off over a floor tom and the farthest away. So if I add overhead drummer left a tiny bit, uh, add a little bit of delay to the drummer's left a tiny bit, add a little bit of delay to snare top a tiny bit, add a little bit of delay to snare bottom a tiny bit, and then of course sort the polarity. Now, when and you can do this inside of something like Pro Tools, and you can hit play on that hit and see it come back. And you can see it is a single hit, as opposed to a smeared hit where the transient is spread out across, you know, whatever... Uh, I don't know, maybe 10 milliseconds, maybe less than that. But what it sounds like is it sounds like I turned on a compressor. It sounds like I turned on a gate. It sounds like I turned on an EQ. And I like the control of being able to make it sound like I've done all these things prior to ever touching any of those things. Yes. And ultimately it gets me, I don't know, 70% closer to a drum sound that I think is a finished produced drum sound without ever having to turn on an EQ, turn on a compressor. And even with gates, you know, same thing. So the reason people hate this idea, well, there's lots of reasons people hate my ideas, but <laughs> this one, <laughs> the way this one blew up on the internet was, well, once you start adding delay to snare top, snare bottom, um, and things like your toms, well, now you've screwed up your phase interaction between your toms and your snare. Well, in my opinion, that was already screwed up because they weren't in time. But in the context of how I use this, I have gates on my toms. So when my tom gets hit, it's going to be open for that moment. And at which point I will have set a delay for that tom mic so that my tom from that microphone and from the closest overhead will have the transient hit the output of the console at the exact same time. So in that moment where that gate's open, it is in the most coherent phase and corrected polarity 
with the other mics that will also be on at that time. Does that make sense? That's it exactly does. how I explain it. Uh, yeah. I, I think people reach to the EQ to fix it before they check the polarity or the time alignment. The in-phase waves plugin taught me that really quick mm -hmm. um, just to be able to follow traces. And like you said, the transient or the impact is what you're trying to keep as close as possible. Um, so if you find yourself reaching for the, the old phase reversal, remember a lot of things, just the way the microphone picks up its pattern, isn't going to be exactly 180 degrees out of phase. Right. Unless you're so Kyle, that's the, I mean, what you're talking about is this is the core of what separates a, a decent system tech from a really good system tech is a really good system tech knows what he can't fix with EQ and right. won't try to. So if you if you the funkiness that you're hearing is the result of multiple arrivals through different microphones from your snare drum, no EQ in the world is going to rectify that. It's a time domain problem. Um, you know, just like trying to EQ out a floor bounce, it's not going to go away, right? So it's the same, it's the same idea that you're talking about, Kyle. Which is, hey, you know, not a, not all of these factors to creating the sound that we're hearing can be affected with EQ, and that's maybe, a really important thing to learn. But maybe outside of even just systems engineering, maybe that's just you know because. I, I guess I could say the same for a mix engineer, you know, knowing sure. how to fix what you're hearing sure. is probably harder than fixing it. You know, it's the same as when you look at smart, right? Smart gives you this trace and it gives you what it gives you. Knowing what to do with that is what actually makes you good at using smart, right? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. So yeah, anybody, anybody could download smart and run it right now, but that doesn't mean that you have the, the context to act upon what it's telling you and, and, and know when not to act upon what it's telling you. Cause that's the whole, that's the whole mission right there is know when to not do anything. Right. <laughs> so um, Ryan, what about, um, what about when you have a drummer uh, who actually sings as well? Do you do anything with that? I usually quit. Turn them <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. Um, anytime I've had a drummer that sings as well, I've spent a lot of effort to learn every single vocal line they have and i write it up and down because i don't i've never found a way where i can just leave that microphone up and it doesn't make a mess of other things um in theory could you align a bunch of things to it and yes but then you're in one of those spots where you've got to prioritize which thing's going to sound good you know um if i leave that microphone up and I make it so that my snare still sounds good with that microphone up. Now maybe I've made the voice itself sound stupid. At which point, uh, I guess it jumps into another thing that I, I, I really like intentionally paying attention to is giving the listener a focus at any given time, right? And in the time where that drummer's singing, maybe on purpose, I will make sure that the focus is no longer the drum kit and it is now that vocal because I'm technically limited by my ability to make sure that both are perfect at that time, I might on purpose duck part of the kit so that maybe the, the low end of the groove is still there, you know, the kick bass, that kind of thing. But maybe I will duck some of the rest of that kit so as I don't, A, make it sound bad by all the, the phase and polarity interaction there, but push the vocal to be the thing you pay attention to so that hopefully you don't notice that there's something gross happening with the drum kit. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, and, and I agree. I mean, yeah, deal, dealing with um, 
I would run away as much as possible from German singers, but you know, <laughs> so, it, it's 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 inevitable at times. You know, I'm, those scenarios, all you can do is get get a mic that has the least bleed and the most oh, yeah. coherent bleed possible. Or, well, that yeah. that was my whole thing is is I want to just make sure people realize mic selection for a singing drummer is a huge factor yeah. in yeah. your success. Um, I have finally gotten my singing drummer into a situation where. Um, his mic actually has less drum bleed than some of the other mics, which is wow. impressive. <laughs> yeah, awesome. so, yeah, so uh, it's just about uh, getting the mic with the proper pattern and getting the placement right and, and working. I mean, I work very closely with my band to, you know, get the mic technique where it needs to be. And, to, and, and I, I think a powerful argument is I, I literally soloed up their multitracks. Like, here's what's coming through your mic all the time, right? And so this is why when you guys want to go in back and, and fix stuff when you listen to your multitracks, this is, this is why. You know, yeah. um, and if this is coming down the snake to me, we've already, you know, we've already lost that. Um, and I also want to just kind of there's there's sometimes when you get into like talking about timelining drum mics and stuff, that there's always someone who will say this is just stuff that engineers hear that, you know, the average person is not going to hear. Um, you hear that excuse. And I can say without a doubt that is not the case and not in my experience, because I tried this uh, for my band, I went in a little bit early for rehearsal and I, you know, brought my, my measuring tape and I literally did, you know, acoustic delay compensation for all the mics. Exactly. What you're talking about Ryan. And, uh, the drummer sat down and he put his in-ears in and he started playing and he looked up at me and said, what did you do? Yeah. And he heard it plain as day. And he's like, I feel like I don't even have my in-ears in right now. He's like, it's like, everything's in the right spot. So if he heard it that clearly and I didn't say anything, I wasn't like, Hey, do you hear anything different? Like he just noticed it cold. Um, that's a pretty strong argument that, that we're not just getting into something that, you know, we hear and no one else here. Cause I, I don't think that's the case. The, the other thing to be aware of is that this does change the overall sound of a drum kit. It makes it really impactful and it moves it kind of forward in the image. That's not necessarily what you want all the time. Right. So for me, uh, even in a pro tool session, if I'm working on a record, I would actually rather put in delays in order to align the whole thing to the latest part rather than moving around waveforms. Not only because obviously in live, that's all you can do, but it also gives me the option to, let's say when we hit a verse, I want to push the drum kit back in the image a little bit and make it sit behind. I can turn off these delays and the whole thing smears a tiny bit and it's a little bit less in your face. And it's not even necessarily that I want it to sit back, but when the chorus hits again, I want it to suddenly be in your face. So I need it to sit back for a moment so that when the chorus hits again, I can turn the delays back on and everything's suddenly aligned and it is super impactful. That is a cool trick. I like that it, one. That's why it's yeah. for me from right now, for sure. <laughs> and the, the, the other thing is that, you know, a lot of people will argue, okay, well, if I have my kick in and my kick out mic and they are actually offset by this amount of time, that actually basically pre-EQs it for me. And they're not wrong because sometimes the way you get the time set up there, yeah, it scoops out all that gross like 400 that you don't really want. So, yeah, that can work and it can be a tool. But I don't think it should be a reason to not try this. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, and we've had uh, Sir, Sir Jim Yak has talked about messing with that time offset between his two kick mics on a venue-to-venue -venue basis because – he's had some rooms where there's some just really unpleasant stuff happening at 60 Hertz or whatever. Right. And so he's, he has used that to, to work around those acoustic issues with the way that the subs are in the venue and stuff. So, so I think, you know, I think the theme here, 
I don't think either of us or any of us are sitting here advocating and saying, everyone go out and do this. I think what we are saying is understand fundamentally what's involved here. Understand why this stuff works. Understand the mechanisms. And then you can, all of these tricks are a result of understanding these mechanisms and, and making them work for you instead of fighting them. Right. And they become a tool that you can choose to use. And the other thing is uh, you don't have to use all the time. You know, exactly. for a jazz band, it might not make as much sense to ensure that there is this kind of impact. You know, yeah, but. and it's like the overarching thing we talk about in audio in general. It's like no, it don't try this if you don't understand what it is you're trying to accomplish. In other words, like right. you know, like don't grab that EQ filter, don't change that compression ratio if you don't know what it is that you're trying to achieve. I mean, I mean, yes, you need to try things out to understand it, but I'm saying like the you know the reason you go for a certain tool, the reason you go for a certain plugin, a, a certain EQ is because you know what you're trying to achieve, and if you don't know what you're actually trying to achieve here with the time alignment. Uh, that that don't go for it. It'd be the opposite way of, of saying it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've I've been writing a book, I guess, at this point, coming upon four years or something like this. I know, Michael, I've chatted with you about this a bit, and there's almost fifty pages. This this is crazy on what I call the mix vision, which is your idea of what this should sound like. It's what you've created in your head of like, this is my finished mix. And the reason it's so many pages is because it basically just harps on what you just said, Chris, is that nothing you do to a mix really should be done before you know what you want it to sound like at the end of it. And of course, the more you do this, um, it becomes easy to go, I need a kick drum to sound like exactly this so that it works with the bass that is also in my head that works, that sounds like this, so that it also works with this, which sounds like this it becomes easier and easier to break apart a mix into the individual elements that make the whole thing. But uh, you need to have an idea of what you want from the whole in order to get to there. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a point A is what's coming from the stage. Point B is where I want to be. And everything in between that is your job and your understanding of your tools allows you to get there faster, better, more efficiently. But point B shouldn't really change just because you have some different set of tools, you know? Right, right. Yeah. So speaking of bass, uh, Kyle, how do you make a bass guitar not sound like shit? Um, <laughs> that could go a lot of different ways, you know? Just one, yeah. it depends on the bass selection. One, uh, muted. Yeah, one, start <laughs> muted. Um, I think people tend to, you know, comp it a little too much live. Uh, but it's a bass selection too. Is it active or passive pickups? Is he playing with his pick or his fingers? Or, how old is the battery? Yeah, how old is the battery? Like, um, how far? Like, when they dig into it, are they hitting pickups? Like, um, you know, simple comp will be good to start. You know, DBX one sixty. You know, something simple to start. I usually like keeping most of my stuff fairly simple um throw it into a subgroup you know smash it real good use the old greg price good cop bad cop method mm -hmm. you know one really smash one not really smash that way i can keep dynamics there it, it depends and and that's a hard one because that was one of the ryan uh statements that got him on the show today was you know <laughs> how do you make and and i think the it, it's another one of those things it's a drums so many variables so many right. variables and bass guitar is the same way so many variables um do i have a bass track plane that's another thing to worry about as well is like do i have some synth lines that are coming out of my tracks that are going to mess with my bass or mm -hmm. is this a big 
um, like thunder Tom part where that's going to mess with my bass. Like, should I pan it off? Like, I don't want to, but these are all things I have to think about. But that's, that's my simple start is to, to figure out what I'm dealing with, how the person's going to play the thing, and then a simple comp to start and then start throwing them into groups and doing some magic. Well, Kyle, one more thing before you pass this off. What's your, uh, you know, Mike and DI, do you use them one or the other? You use them both? Do you have a go to start there or? Yeah. I mean, I used to do DI and Mike on everything. And then obviously, if they have any pedals or they use like a distorted bass sound, I'll go with two. Um, I never really, I don't know. The mic is just like this thing. And I'll, and I'll put that in towards the end. And it's another one of those things where it's a, a, a polarity issue as well, putting that thing in the end. I don't, I, that's one thing I really stopped myself from doing, especially after talking and seeing Chris Mitchell do what he, I was like, Oh, I'm kind of doing the right thing is if I'm, (laughs) if, if I'm, if I'm EQing too much, I stop. And I think that's where, I started winning things or feeling good about my mix and the impact of my mixes is I was trying to keep everything as natural as possible. And, uh, unfortunately I haven't had a band that I had to make something sound super unnatural. Like I would love to do like a big eighties drum kit sound with some crazy yeah. verbs and stuff. And, and the same thing with bass, like I would love to have some serious different bass sounds but it's something i've never really worked with it's more of a control thing at at some point during the live show you know yeah yeah ryan what's your sauce what's your (laughs) go-to man what's your i'll throw one joke in here if your bass player's pedal board is bigger than your guitar guitar player's pedal board walk out (laughs) unless it's the muse and you're good and you're good man the thing is though if my bass player's pedal board is huge it at least tells me he really cares about his tone his or her tone, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I'll admit, I, I find bass the hardest thing in an entire mix. And it's not because bass in itself is the hardest thing in an entire mix. It's because I can make a drum kit sound good. I can play it on a four-inch speaker, uh, uh, you know, a two-way, a full-size PA, and it'll sound good. Um, with bass, it's not necessarily going to be that simple. And I find that the biggest variance I see when I go from, let's say, club to festival to arena show to outdoor show to indoor large club, you know, like as we move around, the biggest thing that changes is the low end in the room. It's it's the sub deployment and how it reacts with the room and all that. And kick drum, I can get away with it because it's it's a single impact. It's short. It's instantaneous. It may excite the room a little bit but you can get away with how that works in a space. And I can, you know, trim the low end up and down bass. It's sustained low notes and sustained low notes. If my PA and my overall system is a little different every day, I feel like that is the one thing that is the least consistent. Now, obviously if um, we were in the same type of room all the time and I had an immaculate system tech ability within myself or an amazing system tech with me all the time, that would be less of a, a thing, but like, let's be real as you go between all, not, not only different gigs within a single artist, but different artists, you go into different spaces that have different kinds of low end and a large portion of the rest of the signal spectrum stays reasonably consistent. So that's what makes bass really hard for me is that you need to have it so damn controlled 
that whatever situation of low end you come into, it's still controlled. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Man, man, that's that's where I was going to go with with my comment is is exactly that. I mean, you can think think of a situation where, and we've all done this, right? You get your virtual sound check going, and you got your cans on, and you're like, "Yeah, man, my low end's super tight." You then take this, you take this <laughs> mix, right? That's perfect, and you put it through a PA system that has subs that are 20 dB higher than than the mains, right? Yeah. You've added this enormous low frequency tilt. Think about what happened. I mean, so the, the, the bass straddles that crossover between sub and main like probably yeah. no other instrument in our mix, right? So um, this is a situation where the tuning of your PA really, really has a, probably a bigger effect than, than almost anything else we're dealing with. I mean, as that yeah. bass player plays up the neck and they're literally crossing through our crossover point, think about how that's going to happen if you've got that haystack versus if you've got a flat PA. I mean, this is one of the things that, that Howard Page was talking to us about and, and Jim Yak wrote like a series of, it's so funny. He when you first had him on on the show, um, he was he was a sub hump guy, and by by the third time he was on the show, he was a flat PA guy, and, and he kind of changed over the summer of the Frampton tour, and he kept emailing me about it. And his big thing was, I want the bass to be consistent up and down the neck. I don't want notes that jump out. Yeah. I don't want notes where I'm like, where did my bass go? And a huge huge variable there is you know how you approach tuning tuning your subs in the relationship with the rest of the PA. Definitely, definitely. I forget. Yeah, I don't know. I remember what episode this was. I feel like it might have been even David Morgan. Um, but uh, talking about that that effect of like, you can almost have this faux effect where a bass player is playing a song, and it's like, man, I don't. Where did he go? I don't know. All of a sudden, he plays a lower note, and it's like, oh, whoa, it was yep. too loud. And that was be- and not because of anything he did, not because your channel didn't move, but because your system was just out of line. That yes, as you walk down that neck, you've actually. In, you've actually mixed the bass different in the song just by the PA being wrong. Right. Yep. You know, it's it's funny because I've wanted for years to get better as a system tech. And unfortunately, like, you know, this year there's not a lot going on. So it's, it's hard to learn all this because I feel like systems, I I personally need to see what it does and feel what it does in order to understand it better than looking at a measurement. Obviously measurements tell me something, but it doesn't necessarily translate mentally for me to what it would feel like in the room doing the show. Because I do, I understand things regarding concerts and shows as how it feels. And I imagine most mix engineers feel that way, but I found a cheaty way about how to make this work for me. If I know I'm going to be on, systems with different amounts of low end and differing crossover frequencies and stuff like that uh, over and over again. And I do this on almost every gig. And I agree 100% that what Jim Yak is saying is the correct way to do this, right? You, you get your system dialed so that as the bass plays from your sub into your mains, it stays consistent. Uh, but because, A, I don't have a perfect knowledge on how to execute that, B, I don't always have access to the system to be able to adjust what the system is doing for me in order to execute that. Like even being, you know, direct support on a, or yeah, direct support on a, on a massive festival, you know, yeah, people go, oh, you're right at the end of the day, but I still didn't get to play with the PA. Um, I'm just using what they have. So my way to get through this, I have now implemented into almost everything I do. And it also helps that I work these days mostly on pop and pop. There's a lot of sub bass. There's a lot of other stuff. And that kind of 100 hertz-ish range is often kind of empty. And it's because pop records 
are like sitting at like minus four luffs, you know, on an album. They're blasted so loud that they need to scoop out that space in order to fit the loudness in there. Do you know what I mean? So the yeah, and that's where the bass boost is in your typical car PA stereo system too. It's oh. right sitting at a hundred. So so if you have a lot of energy there when you put it in the car, it sounds terrible. <laughs> totally. So because of the way pop records are now being built, it's kind of affected the way I build my bass into a show. And subsequently that way I've built it almost lets me ignore imperfect PA implementations. And that that method is basically I end up duplicating the bass to a bunch of channels. Right, so you know, mics, DIs, um, the DI, since it is a clean signal, no bleed, I will at minimum duplicate it once. And that duplicate, I will low pass it around 70 hertz. And I will compress it enough that it sounds like a sub bass from a Moog keyboard. It's just a, a constant note when it's being played. And then that gives me a singular fader that is my kick and bass relationship specifically in the subwoofer and not in my mains. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I can then also put a sidechain comp off the kick in order to clean up my sub. Now I have one fader that controls how my bass feels in the subwoofer. And then everything else I do on the bass is about how it feels in the mains. So I might take a duplicate of that DI, or I might just go straight to the microphone and then use that from a 100 or possibly more and up and i've actually on purpose left a little bit of a hole in between those two because in pop music often that hole is left in the mix anyways and by leaving that hole i've now skipped over that whole crossover point between the subs and the mains and basically eliminated that problem by leaving a hole in my base and in many other genres i could see that being a big problem but in pop I can get away with it, and also I can get away with it by adding a bunch of saturation or something like that on the bass fader that's basically targeted at the mains PA, and that saturation makes it so that you can hear all those notes in between by hearing all the harmonics in between. Does that make sense? It's totally a cheat, but it works. Well, it's no more of a cheat. I mean, I I typically have a single kick drum for a smaller show, but I I always double patch it, and I have kick low and kick high. So I've done what people would do with kick in and kick out and, and my kick low only goes to my sub and my kick high only goes to my main. And so, so instead of an EQ, it's just a fader move. And that means I can, I can do this per song. And so I, it's really no different. And I I've done something similar with, with your bass approach because when I, uh, my band, I, that I work with most, I mix, uh, in ears from front of house and I right. don't want 55 Hertz going to their ears at the same intensity that I need it in the bass channel out front. So I have a high passed bass that goes to the ears and they get the low end from the subwash and that keeps their ears from getting all, you know, distorted and, and overdriven with those super low frequencies. Um, so that came about for me out of technical necessity, which was, I don't want to overdrive their ears. Right. Um, right. but it's the same idea, which is, give yourself these, you know, it, it, the more you can reduce to a fader move, the more you can respond to it quickly and on the fly rather than having to get in and start sliding filters around. So, um, totally, because faders yeah, are easy to totally bump them down during, yeah. you know, different sections of a song even, but making EQ changes can be complicated. Yeah. And, I guess and, the, and, and this becomes like easier because nowadays, like, I mean, I, I remember when they were on a 24 channel desk and I had to make that whole show fit in 24 channels, but now right. the desk that they're on and the desk that I would take them out with, um, I, 
that's not a problem anymore. I have as many buses as I want. I have as many inputs as I want. So, so with that freedom, I think we have to actually start thinking about this in a different way. Like, okay, there, it, it stops being about how many inputs do I need? And like, well, I have 40 extra inputs. What happens if I double patch everything? What is it? What doors? You know what I mean? Like, like I think half of the inputs in my show are double patched. They're 21 physical inputs and they take up 42 on the desk. Right. So, so yeah, I guess I double patch almost everything, but um, that, that means that the compromises that you're talking about, some of them go away because it's no longer how much compression do I need out front versus how much can she tolerate in her ears? If I double patch it, she can have none in her ears and I have as much as I want out front and I don't have a problem anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and the other thing is if you want to do that kick sidechain trick where you've you know got the bass compressing every time the kick gets hit, you shouldn't ultimately be doing it to the whole bass signal anyways. You should only be doing it to the stuff mm-hmm. that's you know in the way, so the subcontent. So right. it makes it easier to do that rather than having to go on and do things like multibands, and that gets complicated. The other thing is if I've got a really sub-heavy day, I can pull down one fader, and I've sorted it out. Right. Well, I think, uh, I mean, I hope everyone's sitting there taking notes on all this because for the, for the, for the drum sound geeks, this is, this has been, uh, a lot of goodies thrown in there. So, you know, you know, you know, you know what we've done, we've started, we've, we've, we've started the mix with Ryan, right? We got our drums and bass. We're going to have to keep bringing them back and we're just going to keep building the mix, right? We're going to move on the guitars. We're going to move on the keys. Right? We're just going to, we're, we're, sorry, Pooch and Raybold, uh, step aside. We, oh, we, wow. we, we, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Dang. And I can't say, none of us can say who it is, but we have secured a pretty cool guest for an upcoming episode that I'm pretty darn excited about. And it's going to be a real, uh, uh, it's going to be a real different thing for the podcast. So it's uh, actually my next episode, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Ryan and John part three. That's what I'm talking about. Well, but, 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 before, <laughs> before we get out of here, I want to, I do, I do want to throw one nod out um, to the roadie clinic, um, Paul and Courtney Clemson. Yes. Um, I, w- I just want to read off some of their stuff. So their mission is, is simple. They exist to empower and heal roadies and their families by providing resources and services tailored to the struggle of the touring lifestyle. Um, you know, they, they had a Facebook post recently and they said baggage, you know, we all have it, we all carry it with us, uh, but we can only imagine what our kids on industry, what, we can only imagine what the kids of our industry will be carrying once we return to the road. Um, their mission is 50% roadie-based and 50% family-based. They care about their children as well. Um, so, you know, I, please go check out the theroadieclinic.com uh, to find out more information about them. You can listen to our episode 45 with them. Uh, we, we, we deeply care about what it is that they have going on and look forward to seeing the impact that they're going to have on our industry. Yes. Paul and Courtney's episode was amazing and ryan o'john your final question that we didn't even get to that i really want to address and help people out with is how to do your taxes when you <laughs> i try to do it myself this year it was a nightmare i will gladly pay somebody to do them next year totally oh, I'll, put it, I'll put it this way i've done it myself enough times and i've also been audited enough times that it is no longer worth it <laughs> It's it not it's the stress. Not. I get all upset. It's not my girlfriend's like, why are you so agitated? It's like I'm trying to do my taxes. It's and, not worth it. And check it out this this year with, uh, you know, COVID and the unemployment thing. This just makes it even more difficult. So it, it's just going to be weird. We we definitely need to do a, a money matters audio podcast for, you know, contractors. Yeah, I'm sure I'm going to poke around. I think we can get someone who uh, knows 
a lot about that stuff to come on and, and drop some knowledge bombs on us. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna say there are a lot of people I know that have gotten real deep into the differences between S corps, LLCs, C corps, and stuff like that. I mean, Chad Olick is one of those guys that I know he has gone so deep into this stuff, and Chad, he probably Chad, understands Chad, it Chad. better than most people. I know. Yep. Also a former podcast guest. So, you know, it's, yeah. we and have a cover the here. king of memes on his Facebook page. <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot he was also a front of house engineer. Yeah. All right. <laughs> In his spare time, he TMs, PMs, and does front of house. Yeah, exactly. Oh, but. Ryan, thanks for thanks for being with us, man. It was it was a lot of fun. And mm. I think Chris is on to something. You have to come back in uh, episode three. Get into the guitars a little bit. It'll, it'll be fun. Yeah, Thank- man. Thanks, bro. Thanks for having me, guys.